You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. So has there been any, any raccoon activity around your house lately? Well, there's some suspected raccoon activity because Ty actually made me quit feeding the raccoons. Why? He said we couldn't feed the entire forest. Well, the entire forest isn't raccoons. I know, because like, I had three that were named. Uh-huh. It was Jesse, Frank, and Cole. Cole was younger. And about two people are going to get that joke. And so... Okay. And they they would come when I called them and I would feed them and they would come one at a time because I don't feed them in groups because they fight. Mm-hmm. And it's fair. Yeah. So uh, they're around and something got into the chicken house the other night um, and one of the chickens is missing her tail feathers. I mean, like all of them. So who's the most likely culprit there? Probably a raccoon because they, they go from the back. It's really funny. They go from the back and then they work their way forward and then they bite off their head. No, I mean as of like of the three. Oh, who knows? When, when I quit feeding them, they went back and kind of, now they harass the campers. Yeah. Have they messed with your fish station anymore? No, but that was fun because uh, there was one I had for a while that um, would turn the water on and do whatever he was doing and I'd find this little muddy paw prints all around it, but then water was always turned off at the end, in the morning when I get up. Yeah. So, but no, they haven't been up around that anymore. And, but I do know there's some in the park that figured out how to work zippers. Uh huh. Yeah. So, um, the campers aren't safe. We try to warn them that if they're going to have food, don't put it in your, in your tent, keep it in your car suspended or something. Yeah. And even suspending it's ridiculous because those things are stupid smart. Yeah. They're, and yeah, they're pretty clever. But yeah, I mean, they, and, you know, we just go the raccoons. I do have a, a possum. His name is Grandpa. Okay. Do you feed him? I feed him. Uh, he's new. I, I didn't. I didn't know you had a possum. <laughs> yeah, he he's huge. He's like twice as big as anything you've ever seen on the side of the road. He's giant, and so I I'm assuming it's a he. I haven't gotten that close, but I'll throw him food, and he'll like look at me and then turn one shoulder and then reach over and around like he's gonna. Like I'm not gonna notice that he's actually grabbing <laughs> what I gave him. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> so he likes chocolate-covered biscuits. Uh, don't ask me how I had the combination. It was just, yeah. Like it, biscuits like you have a breakfast biscuits? Yeah. Or are you talking about like, Ty you're made, not talking like English definition no, of biscuits? No, no. Ty made canned biscuits and then chocolate gravy. And so I was getting rid of that, and he he loved it. And not so, sure how I feel about that. Uh, don't tell Ty, but I wasn't a fan. Okay. So, yeah, it it just... It would break his heart to know that his grandma's recipe was not mine. Yeah, you can keep it. I don't know, chocolate biscuits, that just seems kind of, or it chocolate just, gravy seems kind of weird, especially on like a, like a breakfast, like, of course, I don't know, I kind of have a skewed biscuit uh, comparison. <laughs> Mom's biscuits were a little heavy. And they were there every morning. Every morning. Biscuits so. and gravy every morning. And so, yeah, if I never have biscuits and gravy again, I, I'm fine. 
Now, now I will say I do like I do like Brahms biscuits and gravy for those of you who are out of state. Brahms local restaurant chain, they're pretty good. Um, of course, then you got you got sausage gravy, so it's like it's like meat and biscuit. Yeah, no, I'm gonna stick with my cup of coffee. Uh, that's that's breakfast. Yeah, well, three cups of coffee, four, depending on the day. Uh, I, I I actually yeah I do the French press thing and I do the whole. I'll do it two or three times during the day. Yeah, I used to do that back before I had kids, but anymore I'm kind of a one cup person. Like I get my cup in the morning and I'm good to go. It doesn't even seem worth it. No, it is. Yeah, I totally I, worth it. No, I gotta have the whole. I, I will drink on it all day. And I recently discovered. I used to think I didn't mind cold coffee, but I recently discovered I actually hate cold coffee because I got an insulated cup. Finally, I came into you know 2018 and actually pre- realized that insulated cups were a thing. Well, if you get something other than French roast, it might actually taste decent cold. No, I do French press. No, but you I, generally, like, the times you bought coffee for here, it's been, like, French roast. Oh, uh, usually it's because that's what they had. But, yeah, no, I'll, I usually go get that ground at Homeland. Yeah, the, uh, no, because there, there are some coffees that, there's some that have to be hot and have to be fresh. Um, but I found there's, there's a couple of brews that, um, and there's one that Starbucks used to do called Cafe Estima. And I, I actually thought it was better cold. So it just, it depends on, which roast and which I don't think I've had that one. They discontinued it. it of was, course. It was so good. The one that I loved and and but we do um we do Verona now and it, it does okay at any temperature, I think. Verona's okay. I it, it does all right. But yeah, but that's the thing. We don't have like um a Starbucks anywhere near. Yeah. Well it was it was, uh, it was kind of funny because we were talking about coffee the other day, um with Mickey and and one of the co- one of our uh, the teachers up at the school, uh, the three of us were talking about coffee, and I was like, I can drink coffee at any temperature; it just doesn't bother me. And she goes, "You would be a great stay-at-home mom." And I'm like, "I'm kind of halfway there." <laughs> you are, um, you know, because it's uh, Mickey and I have kind of an arrangement where um, uh, she's actually full time now, uh, but she is she's actually uh, loving. She loves what she does. Uh, I'm still part time, but. I go into work early, and then we, uh, we switch. You pass the kids off like a baton at a relay race. Yeah, yeah, we kind of pass each other as as uh, the day goes about. And she she gets the kids ready to school, brings them to work because we work at the same place. She brings them to work. I get in the car. I take the kids to school. Then I come back and finish my work day, and then I go pick the kids up at school. And so I've got, uh, depending on the day, I've got anywhere between. Uh, two and uh sometimes four hours uh roundabout where i'm i'm the one in charge and so you know it seems like more than that i i it it feels like more than that some days um but yeah the uh yeah i always think of uh the old mr mom the michael keaton movie and so we need to do that one on the commentary and i'm actually i'm actually thinking about doing that one with mickey um and then that would be uh I think that that would be a Patreon uh, episode. <laughs> that should be funny. Has she seen it? I don't know if she's seen it or not, but I remember uh, we used to have it on VHS, oh, and yeah. we watched it a hundred times at least. We could quote it for a while. Oh man, yeah. 
<laughs> talking about doing the wiring. 110, 220, yeah, 220, 221, whatever it whatever takes. It takes. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Grandma had that vacuum cleaner, that terrifying vacuum cleaner. <laughs> yeah, I just, I love, I don't know. I, and the thing is, I don't know if you could get away with that movie nowadays. I don't, because I mean, the, it was a, you know, it was a social commentary mm-hmm. as any, you know, decently written thing is. But times have changed quite a bit since then, and which is weird to think because, I mean, I'm not that old, right? Times, could, times couldn't have changed that much. Netflix has every major decade I have lived through. Well, I mean, they're all major, but every decade I have lived through, they now have a special on it, except for the 2001 to 2010. The aughts. The aughts. Yeah, they don't have those, but the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. And I'm like, I am not old enough for any TV either to be any kind of special on that decade yeah it just it shouldn't happen kind of like uh the radio station used to do the flashback cafe for lunch and i'm like you know i'm like and this this was actually even years ago this was still like 10 years ago and i'm like going on lunch and they're like ah flashback cafe and uh, all of a sudden it's like smashing pumpkins come on like oh, wait a minute <laughs> that, that that's not right uh yeah well you know Nirvana is now classic rock. I know. Nirvana, Smashing Pumpkins, Pearl Jam. It, it, it's no, wrong. Yeah. <laughs> it's wrong. Not right. So, uh, but yeah, that's kind of a sad state of affairs. Yeah. And you and I are almost mostly more gray than not at this point. So, that's true. That's true. That's actually, I, I went and uh, me and Mickey went down to Dallas uh, over the summer and we, we had lunch with a friend or had dinner with a friend that we hadn't seen in a while. And the first, one of the first things he said was like, man, you got gray. I'm like, hey, thanks. That's uh... Well, I hadn't mentioned this before, but since I brought up the gray hair, like the gray on our earphones actually almost perfectly matches your hair. So... That's my story now. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the earphone cushion. So yeah, it's, it's on the headphones. Um, anyway, I think, I think we've, we've kind of got long enough. I think we've got longer than we ever have on that. So, <laughs> considering how long it took us to get started with something to banter with, <laughs> yeah, that's true. So, um, today actually we're getting into something that that kind of excites me because this is one of those things where you kind of see a recurring, uh, recurring theme and throughout the Bible, and something that if you, you know, if you grew up reading the Bible, you're gonna miss it, um, and especially. This is something that really has come only kind of come to light over the last several years, or last few years, or last several last couple decades, I guess would be probably the better way to say it. Because well, it's been around longer than that in academic circles. Yeah, well, that's what I mean. I'm saying like in academic circles, but it's it's something that I just heard about in the last couple of years, and so it's pretty exciting to me to to look into this. And what we're talking about is uh, Genesis one as a polemic. And so for those of you who don't know what a polemic is, Emily, you're going to, yeah. Actually, why don't you jump in there and, and tell us what we got going on? I actually pulled two verses, uh, not two verses, sorry. Everything's a verse when, you know, everything's a nail when all you have is a hammer. Uh, no, uh, this is two definitions. Uh, a polemic is an aggressive attack or refutation of the opinions and principles of another. That's Merriam-Webster. I want to give you proper definitions. Uh, Oxford actually says a strong verbal or written attack on someone or something. 
And so there, there we go. That's that's kind of our our basis. And we kind of touched on this in the first episode. Yeah. And we just kind of wanted to come back to it and delve deeper into it. So uh, we wanted to talk about Genesis one as a polemic, and we wanted to give some specific uh, examples of how that works, so that we weren't just kind of like spotting off anything. And we want to give a couple of resources on that. So. The reason why I like this is because it holds up theologically. Okay. It, it, it really puts God at the front and the center. He is the God above all gods. He's greater than anyone else. And anytime something keeps pushing us towards viewing God as bigger, I think that's a good thing. Right. Because our human imagination, we're never going to get close. Right. And, and one, of the, one of the things I like about it is it really takes, and I think we mentioned this in the first episode because we kind of we touched on this a little bit. But the um, it really does take the weight off of all of the little arguments or what I consider little arguments. And I don't know if you have this in the notes. I haven't really looked over the notes for this one. Um, so that's You're my bad. Kidding. We're jumping ahead. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I've been I've swamped with technical issues. So that's, that's where my head has been. But anyway, so I like that it takes away from that argument. And also, it fits in whichever worldview you have, right? whether evolution or six-day creation. It doesn't matter, because if you're caught up in those, you're missing the polemic view. And it doesn't require that you, you do away right. with your yeah, You don't have to abandon Yeah, Yeah, you can one. look at it either way. It still works as an addition to both viewpoints. And I think this is actually the most important aspect. As Nathan was saying, it takes away from those little arguments. Right. And I think it's important we we look at it because to us reading, you know, if you just start with Genesis 1 and you don't have the other stories going on, to us it's just, uh, well, here was, here's, you know, kind of God going, so here's how my first six days were. Um, But whenever you read it from the polemic aspect, it really uh, shows how how uh, the Jewish faith was really revolutionary and, and a great book. And I've, I've referenced this book before, but it's the, the gifts of the Jews by Thomas Cahill. And one of the things he talks about was how before, uh, before uh, Abraham, the world kind of existed cyclically, nothing hadn't, there was no beginning, no end. Mm-hmm. And so when we get into um, Judaism, is when we first start seeing a progression that we're part of something that's bigger than ourselves. A chronology. A chrono- yeah. Yeah, a, yeah. I guess you can use that word. But because <laughs> you did. Um, but it's something that's bigger than ourselves, and we are building towards something that's bigger than we are now. And, and we're, we're not, going to participate in it. Right. And we're not just caught in a cycle. And mm-hmm. so um, that being said, uh, yeah. I'm going to throw that back to you. And Yeah. Well, and that's, that's some of the other things it does. It also, uh, viewing things this way also. Um, it solves a major textual problem because a lot of people don't realize when you read through Genesis 1 and then you turn around and read Genesis 2, even though they're both creation accounts, they don't match. There's right. a major problem uh, with that, and there's just no way you can get them to line up. Uh, Genesis 1, you have a week of creation. Genesis 2, you have a day of creation. Man is created on the sixth day in Genesis 1. He's created before the plants and anything else on uh genesis 2 and so this this is a problem right and as christians i think sometimes we 
we just kind of focus on the creation story that we like the best and we kind of ignore the other one. Mm -hmm. And if we're going to be true to the text and operate with integrity, we can't do that. And we're going to have to acknowledge both exist and still affirm the truth of both. So how do we do that? Right. So how do you do that? Well, it's by <laughs> not reading them as literal guides, step-by-step -step guides on how to create a universe. You, you read them as a revelation of theology yeah. instead Would, of science. So anyone who's actually looking to use this as a step-by-step -step guide later to build a universe, whoever's working <laughs> on that project. Um, there are people. Well, there are, but I mean, not many have access to the, the what is it, the Hadron Collider? Collider. <laughs> yeah, they're not going to be at CERN smashing. Yeah, well, it was actually really funny. I was, I was listening to, um, was, it pure, was it Paranormal I was listening to? And it was great because they had a guy on who was, who was actually, he's a pastor who worked in quantum physics. And he was talking about, uh, he's like, there's a minute chance that we might accidentally create a black hole. And he was talking about, it was really funny, he was talking about it super casually. And he goes, he goes but right now the, the latest research on black holes is suggesting that they, that they evaporate. And so if we did by chance create a black hole through the, the Hadron Collider, he goes, by the time it could affect anything, it would have already evaporated. It would have just existed for like just a split second anyway. And so, but that's, that just cracked me up because he was like, it's like, you know, there's, there's a slight chance we could be off, you know, we could do something like create a small black hole, but that's not a big issue. Like, like, wait, that that seems like a big issue um, yeah. until he explained it. Yeah, well, and, and that's like most things. They're a big issue until somebody explains it. Yeah, that's, that's fair. So, I mean, the way the toilet works is a big <laughs> issue. You have a child who's being potty trained. That's a big issue until somebody that, explains that's it. That's a big issue until they grasp it. I mean, I can explain it all I want, but anyway, that's a whole nother story. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just breaking it down. Guess what stage of life we're in right now. But, um, but I think what people, the other problem that happens when we read Genesis 1, we act like this was being written down almost as things were happening. Right. And, and so we read it in progression and we don't realize that this wasn't written till hundreds of years, depending, or thousands of years, depending on how you read your problem, probably thousands right. um, of years after the fact. And so... We've got to remember that nobody was there writing this stuff down as it occurred. And probably um, when we're looking at Genesis, Genesis 1 through 11 was probably supernaturally imparted to Moses. Uh -huh. It was probably not something even remembered uh, in the history or the, the collective memory of Israel at this point. Now from Abraham on, now we're talking family lineage and that sort of heredity rights and things like that. So mm -hmm. that was probably remembered. So we're looking Genesis chapter 11 forward or 12 forward. It is probably something that they did hold in their collective memory. Before that, God's kind of given Moses how to view these beginnings of the world and how to interpret, the, interpret these events through God's lens instead of the lens of all of the societies and cultures around them. And so... Now, do you think some of that was prompted because of his... Now, we've talked about it being a polemic, but what is a We're going to... I'm just going to put this out there. I'm assuming you're talking about it's a polemic against the Egyptian mythology because they were coming out of Egypt. Yeah. So do you think Moses' knowledge of the Egyptian uh, mythology helped inform that to him? Uh, absolutely. I mean, and Acts, and I'd have to... Look, I don't think I 
caught the verse. In Acts, Paul tells us that Moses was trained in the ways of the Egyptians. Right. So we know that, that Moses had this. Now, the really cool thing about Scripture is, even though it works as a polemic against the Egyptian mythology, it also works as a polemic against the Canaanite mythology. So okay. God, in his wisdom, uh, we have a polemic that's going to fight against the ideology that they're carrying with them out of Egypt. And he's also offering a polemic for the ideology they're going to confront when they go into the promised land. Right. And it works on both levels. And it works even uh, Mesopotamian, Canaanite, um, and the Egyptian. God just hits it all. And he does it in this just really amazing way that we don't get because we don't know the stories. Right. Well, that's actually um, kind of interesting. Um, this was what is, is that that makes sense to me because I was watching... Uh, I was watching Veggie Tales with my daughter. Uh, the story, That's a great theological the, resource. The story of Joni, it's actually, it's amazing how much you can pull out of those. Um, but they were talking about the people of Nineveh, they worshipped a fish god. Mm-hmm. And I, I always love it whenever you see that reversal of God using that thing that the pagans worshipped or deified to, to, to accomplish his means. And so when the it was... In the VeggieTale story, when the king realized that it was a fish that brought Jonah to their to to Nineveh, um, that their god was a fish god, and so for Jonah's god to command the fish meant that Yahweh was greater than Dagon. It's, yes, yeah, and that's what most people don't realize. It's like God saying, "You want to worship fish? Here you go. Here's a man from a fish." Yeah, he doesn't look so hot now, does he? Right. So, yeah, I, I love stuff like that whenever you're like, and, and even even uh, another one that I love is uh, is Isaiah where it says the, the good are taken to be spared evil. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that right there, you want to mm-hmm. talk about God using uh, using something meant for evil for good um, to be able to use death itself to, to as a mercy to his people. That so, actually, that, that verse, I remember. Poking the devil in the eye. Uh, yeah, well, and that's pretty much what it is. And I like it because I'm a little sarcastic. You're a lot sarcastic. Uh, or maybe it's reversed. But anyway. Um, we, we both have our share. And, and Probably so, someone else's too. <laughs> yeah, really. I, I, but I, I like it when I see that side of God where he just, he is. I mean, he, he, it's, there is almost a sarcasm about it. And it's almost so take that kind of attitude. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love it. And that verse, actually, I was going to say, and it's going to sound horrible, on the heels of that kind of flippancy almost, I actually ran across that verse the first time um, when Grandpa Underwood died. And I remember because it just hit home with me because his retinas were detaching and there was the big discussion about whether or not he should come live with one of the kids or uh-huh. should go to an assisted living. And I read that verse and I'm like, Oh, this is why. And, yeah. and it was a great deal of comfort. And in a world where we're terrified of death, to know that God rules over death. Yeah. It, it is huge. Yeah, and, it's, and it's almost like the shoot the hostage thing from Speed. It's like, oh, yeah, you, it does eliminate the, uh, the conflict. Well, uh, yeah. And, and the thing is, whenever you've got power over death and life, it doesn't matter. Right. I, you, the rules are yours. That's the great thing about being sovereign. You can do whatever you want to do. And so I, I think that's a concept, just even being sovereign, that we've, we've lost in our society. Right. And I, most of us don't even 
control our own lives. And I mean, I barely, I, I control moments of it, mine. It depends on, uh, depends on my level of, uh, caffeine, I guess. I say your kids are still going to yell for you the, for you to come wipe their butts. So <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, that's... no, one of them will. The other one, I think we're done with the first one. So. Yay. Yes. <laughs> um. Okay. So how did, I said I was going to give some specific examples. And um, so the first thing, most creation stories of Egypt and the Middle East and the Near East, um, they all began with one thing. And that's a watery abyss. Mm-hmm. Almost every single one. And in Genesis 1, verse 2, what do we begin with? And the Spirit of the Lord hovered over the waters. That... Yeah, that's... And so, well, and so out of, out of these, like, we, and we talked about this too, is you mentioned we, you, when you were researching this, you, you came across that the, the Egyptian gods, the, the first of the Egyptian gods, were born out of the water. Yes. And so here you've got the Spirit of God hovering over the water saying, no, I didn't even come from the water. Exactly. You know, so, you know, he's got a, the toadies beat. Yeah. Um, Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good image. You know, the toadies kind of coming out of their, their little slime pit. I I was talking about the band. Well, I, I know, but I had, (laughs) I went another direction because I have been thinking about all this. Uh, But God's hovering over the water. He's distinct. He's separate. Autumn uh, in one of the, uh, the creation myths. And that's the other thing. Egypt had like 20 different creation myths. Uh, maybe not Fair. that many, but I mean, definitely at least three distinct creation myths. And so it, it kind of depends on which one you go with, but it's funny because Genesis one hits them all. Yeah. And so autumn, he, he um, manages to distinguish himself much like the first um, microbe that distinguished itself in, in uh, evolution, that first little single celled organism. Oh yeah. Uh, he he distinguishes himself from the rest, and his first act is to create other helper gods. That's the first thing he's going to do. Um, so God immediately, you know, like you said, I'm separate. The other major creation myth is that this the god of breath or wind and Amun, Amun, Atom, Amun. These are great names. They're so close together. Uh, he breathes life into the sea of chaos, and it's the movement that creates new gods. Huh. And so God, um, he's over the face of the deep. His spirit hovers over the water. The Hebrew word for spirit also means breath, breath. or wind. So again, what, whichever creation story you want to take as great, God's still saying he's, he's greater. Right. He, he's not a part of it. Yeah, that's... That's pretty interesting. Drop your notes there again. Yeah, I can't hang on to um, to notes. The the third one is actually Ptah, and he he creates through the spoken word. He he's pretty much the only deity in Egyptian and Middle Eastern religions that speak, creates through the spoken word. But what's funny is he speaks Atum into existence. So he's, and we begin with that story. <laughs> And so he only creates by proxy. And the, we want and I want to point this out, and we're going to come back to this before it's over with. When these gods would emerge from the water, there would be this little hill that would pop up. 
And this little hill is a sacred spot to that god. And that's where their temple would be built. And that's where they would be worshipped. Huh. Yeah, because this is, this is going to be significant a little later on. Um, so you've, you've done some more research on this since the last time we talked. That's, uh, that's pretty interesting, though. Uh, well, I, I, there's so much to cover, and we're only covering part of it. Right. Uh, and this is not just me. Um, God doesn't emerge out of the chaos. He's separate and distinct, and he doesn't create helper gods. And I know that may sound counter to the divine worldview that we just discussed, but right. this is a good time to make that distinction. God never enlists help in creation. The creation is his own work. Always, always. And, and that's the, the thing. Whenever you look at Egyptian or Mesopotamian, anytime something new is created, you're actually creating new gods. Huh. So, I mean, like the sun is a god. Sure. The moon is a god. And so when God creates, he's not creating new gods. He is creating physical, tangible things. Mm-hmm. These are not spirit beings, so that's an important, um, an important distinction. The primary means of creation in almost every creation myth, and in particular looking at the Egyptian, is separation, which we know that God separates the light from the day, or light from the dark, separates the waters from the waters. Uh-huh. We went over that in the last episode. Um, he, he separates um, land and the sea. Egyptian myths, you see that also. But when God creates, he's not creating, he's separating what's already there. He's not separating them to create new beings. Right. And so that's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of cool. Um, because we don't realize, you know, we're so used to the scientific method or the scientific idea we don't look at the sun as a god, but can you imagine not understanding that as an ancient person? Oh, yeah. I mean, it would be totally weird. I was, I was actually, I was listening to something about uh, Halloween and, you know, its origins uh, as the, the beginning of the new year, uh, according to ancient traditions, where, you know, you bring in your harvest and then it's like you, you kind of have this funeral for the sun, especially in, you know, when you're up in the far northern hemisphere and you don't get much daylight. It really seems like the world's getting ready to die because the sun is, is leaving you. And so, yeah, I imagine that, you know, if, if you were raised with a religion that, you know, that the sun could not return if you don't do the, the ceremonies right. I mean, that, that'd be terrifying. Well, it, it, not just because you did the cere- didn't do the ceremonies right. If you did the ceremonies wrong, then this God is going to be defeated by another evil God. Uh-huh. And in, in, Egypt, in the Egyptian theology, this is the God of chaos who's going to rise up and going to take over the earth and, uh, and reclaim it. And so you're going to return to that watery abyss. And so, you know, every day was Ra had emerged victorious from the night and he had won his battle and the earth was, had to be recreated in that single day again. So every day was a reenactment of that creation day, right. which that's why it's important. We have a week of creation in Genesis 1 that automatically God's saying, I create something, it stays created. Okay, yeah. You create something, you got to go through it again because you're not that powerful. And so if you don't know the stories, 
you don't see that. Right. And really, creation in Egyptian mythology did not begin until the sun rose. That's when the action took off. Before that, you're kind of just getting the, the set set, the set set up, the scene set. The scene set. The stage set. The set assembled. Yeah, the, yeah, you're just kind of getting the pieces and parts together so you can actually start to work. Once the sun comes up, now you can begin to create. Now it's going to be, uh, you know, it's game on. But that's okay. what's interesting about Genesis 1. God doesn't create the sun and the moon until day four. Right. And not only does not God not create the sun and moon until day four, the two words you will not find in that verse sun and moon. are sun and moon. Because sun and moon are also the names of the Egyptian and Mesopotamian oh, that's, gods. that's interesting. Yeah. So you couldn't even call out that element without naming a god, and God said, uh-uh, I don't want it. It's the lesser light and the greater light. Huh. Yeah. And be, oh, I mean, it's there's layer after layer. Like I said, I'm just hitting some high points because once you start with creation begins at sunrise, God even flips that, right? Because there was evening and there was morning, and it was day one, evening and morning, day two, and He continues that pattern all the way through because the sun was not going to get credit for being the creator, and. God's just adamant that he's going to be praised above these other gods. Oh, well, that makes a lot of sense. That, that's kind of fun. It's, it really is. But re, and the other fun thing, you remember I talked about, the, uh, about that little hill that was, would appear when a god would emerge. Yeah. Well, Genesis is also very clear that dry land, all dry land appeared when God called it forth. And this is the reason why he has the authority to reign over all the earth. And so if you got a hill, I got the world. Right. And, but we, we, again, we don't see it. Right. Yeah. That's, that's, that's pretty cool. I like that. It was, and, and you know, um, I like this Psalms 24, 1 and 2, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein, for he founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. And I think we quote the first part of that verse, but we never stop to realize that Psalms is even still singing the praises of this creative act and in that context that God is the Lord over chaos. So, and it gets even de deeper when you go when you think about when Moses wrote this, they're coming out of Egypt. They've just crossed the Red, Red Sea. Pharaoh, whose job is to do those rituals right, it is to make sure that Ra returns every morning. The, the, the Nile's going to flood yeah. every year. And he's got to make sure that chaos doesn't rise up. And how do you make sure chaos doesn't rise up? By keeping, uh, keeping the status quo of your nation. Yeah. And what's the biggest threat to the status quo? A slave uprising. Mm -hmm. So what I think is, I mean, to me, this is God's ultimate sense of humor, where he is terrified of chaos, and his job is to keep chaos at bay. And the number one symbol in all of the ancient world of chaos is the sea. Right. And it's the sea that takes him and his armies out. Right. 
And I, I think there's something there that I think that I preach, you know, maybe your, your biggest fear, maybe you need to kind of get children. Maybe you got kind of need to keep a brain on that. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that's, that's actually, yeah. Love the, uh, because it's really funny because I know this isn't exactly what you're talking about, but I was thinking of, uh, when you're talking about the, the little hill appearing every time there was a new God created, that kind of reminded me of Moana. And because we watch a lot of Moana around our house because we have the two and five-year-old. Anyway, who I love. I don't know. <laughs> it didn't sound like that in the tone. But, but you know, uh, Maui talks about, you know, using his magic fish hook to pull uh, islands up out of the sea. And um, that, that kind of reminded me of that. So I kind of had Moana on the brain anyway. Um, even though it's not a direct correlation. Um, but you were talking about facing things head on. And there's like that, there's the scene where she's trying to get out past the reef and the waves mm-hmm. are breaking. And it's like, and also I thought of this too, because I just listened to the commentarians episode that Joe and I did last year, where it's like, you know, there's the scene where she starts to go, but she gets scared and her outrigger goes sideways and it flips over. Um, but then when she goes again and she hits the wave straight on, then that's when she's able to get over it and 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 get out mm-hmm. to the open waters. Yeah. Well, and I think also that that kind of reflects how so many cultures in it, the Middle East, um, Egypt, there there is still this idea that creating land that you pull it up from the the the, the sea. That's kind of a uniting thread. So whether you you pull it up with a fish hook, or a god separates himself and causes this hill to rise up, or or God, our God, just speaks the word, mm-hmm. and, and therefore our God is showing himself to be superior. The the similarity is still there, and, and yeah. this this caused a huge problem in in Christian academia. It really did. I remember. Uh, I mean, I wasn't. Oh my goodness. They're really going at it. So I promise they're not being abused again. Uh, but I'll no, I, I remember this was this this caused quite a stir. And I, I think this is actually kind of where part of and I, and we've talked about this before, where the there's been a big separation between the pulpit and the academy because the uh, whenever this stuff started coming forward and people started seeing the similarities and you know get comparative religion studies the 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 preachers a lot of popular preachers were accusing academics of trying to um, devalue the word of god Mm -hmm. trying to say that god was not unique not all powerful and so you really that's when you started getting a lot of anti-intellectualism in the church and i mean even more than already existed Mm -hmm. um but it really i mean like i said i i don't remember exactly when it was but i remember hearing a lot of these things and it really did cause a lot of problems and I think that it's one of those things where, you know, some things start, start out scary, but if you just ride it out for a second, you'll figure out, oh, no, this is actually helpful. Yeah. Well, I think one of the big problems with it is these stories predate the Bible. Right. Uh, whether we're talking about Egyptian mythology or we're talking about uh, Enum Elish, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, uh, if we, Enuma Elish, uh, if we uh, look at these and we go, oh man, these were written before the Bible, the Bible must have just copied them, that's that's kind of scary. Right. 
but when we look at it, okay, the Bible didn't just copy. Moses isn't taking the Egyptian stories and taking out, let's take Ross' name out and let's put in. Well, it, it, well if you think about it, before, uh, before we kind of figured out this uh, polemic idea in, in academia, the, what, what everyone's used to hearing is that, well, you know, when Rome conquered a nation, what did they do? They went and they took their gods and they replaced mm-hmm. their names with Roman names. Mm-hmm. And so that's the idea that a lot of people approach this literature with whenever they started seeing that the, that the ancient texts were, were so similar. And instead of seeing that, you know, like, this kind of goes into the retelling aspect of it, uh, subversive retelling of the story, it, it goes beyond just, you know, we didn't just come in and take over and get rid of and change everyone's names out. It's right. totally different. Process. This is not a cut and paste. This is actually taking elements of the story and things. It, it, there's a reason for taking elements of a known story. You take elements of a known story so that your audience knows what you're talking about. Moses' audience would have known, hey, this is what a creation account is supposed to sound like. There would have been almost this false sense of security. Okay, this is how it works. And then when they started to think about what, was, what they were hearing, mm-hmm. wait a minute, this isn't what we expected. This is something greater. This is something more important. And, you know, when we were talking, you were talking about um, coming around to it as a polemic, Casuto, um, and if you study any... Jewish sources on Genesis. If you study Genesis, you need to know Casuto. Yes, I've heard the name. And yeah, he is like the final word. He is well, maybe not the final, but he is one of he's the standard, right for for the studies in Genesis. And you can still find some of his books on Amazon, but man, you kind of have to hunt for him. And one volume uh, is like seventy bucks, and so that's used. And be happy to get it. Right. And so I have the copies. Um, so, um, but they are, um, he actually had argued this for a long time, but because Christians weren't paying attention to what Jewish scholars were doing, we kind of missed it. And there was oh, yeah. that, oh no, fear and trembling and the, you know, seminary was cemetery. Yeah. And how dare you uh, actually try to read the ex- don't read those texts, they're lies. Yeah, well, and that's, that's kind of the interesting, like you talk about cemetery, seminary and cemetery, that's one of the things I, you know, I hear a lot of people say, oh, uh, and I, I know you kind of felt this way at the beginning of your seminary, and then you came out of it more refreshed than ever. But, you know, people talk about, oh, we, we, if you study God too much in an academic sense, you, it's like you're putting a frog in a jar and you got to kill it and dissect it. and and you know, if you're really studying God that academically, then you're not, you know, you're learning all this stuff with your head, but you're not really engaging your heart. And I, and I would, I would beg to differ with, with that, because if you really love something, you're going to learn about it. I mean, uh, you know, we can go through all kinds of examples. We can talk about spouses. If you really love your spouse, you're going to pay attention to, to what they need. Um, you know, I do that with varying degrees of, of, uh, <laughs> success, success, um, in my marriage. Um, I attempt. Uh, sometimes I don't always make it, but um, you know that's one example. Um, my favorite one is Comic Con. If anyone has ever been there, is actually it's funny that we're using this. I hadn't planned on it, but I, earlier today I posted a video about um, cosplay, and um, 
uh, earlier when we were recording this, but it'll be a couple weeks out now. I'll post it again later. But it was Adam Savage was talking about his cosplay experience in the video. But think about this. He, you know, he, he went as uh, No-Face from Spirited Away. Well, in order to make that costume, first off, he has to decide he's going to make it. Well, how does he decide he's going to make that costume? Well, because he loves the movie Spirited Away. And he thought that would be a cool costume to make. It's going to take a lot of what? Study. He's got to study proportions of the character. And I saw there were pictures of the costume. And they looked like No-Face come to life. So, um, but anyone who sees Adam Savage build no, the No-Face costume or sees the video, of them, no one's going to say, oh, well, you know, there's no way that he loves No-Face with the amount of time he put in studying his dimensions and drawing up that mask and reproducing it and, and building the scaffolding to hold the mask. Because the mask isn't something you're just going to put on your face. It's actually... It actually would have to have some kind of internal structure to hold the mask above your head for the proportions of the character. And they were dead on. No one's going to doubt that Adam Savage loved that movie and loved No Face. So this, to me, the, the, the accusation that studying God, uh, studying the Bible, and more, the more academic you get, the, the less uh, passionate you get. I mean, the only way that's going to happen is if you're doing it wrong. Well, and I think there, there, there's like... There's like a bump, you know, you, you, because like you said, there was a point at the beginning where, man, I, I was so tired of dissecting God like a frog. And I really felt burnt out as I was going into this. But then it's like, once you push past that, that's when the text really comes alive. And that's when you rediscover your passion and you start finding ways to dig deeper. Yeah. And because I know so many Christians, I've heard them say things like, I can't even read my Bible. I can read books about the Bible, but I'm so tired of reading my Bible because I know it. Okay, if you've reached that point, you need to be digging deeper. Right. Because I'm guaranteeing you're, you're reading at a level you're comfortable with. Now it's time to make yourself uncomfortable. Uh-huh. And, and that's, you know, whether you're... Sorry. Uh, no, whether you're doing a deeper um, Bible study, whether you're learning some Hebrew and Greek, uh, just availing yourself of better books, better podcasts, better videos. It's out there. Right. And you're just going to have to make a conscious effort to get there. And I'm not saying you have to go to seminary, but. Oh, yeah. I mean, I haven't been to seminary. And again, that's one of the things that, you know, I may go eventually. It just depends on how God calls me. I, you know, my life's not over. Um, and there's, there's, the possibilities are endless. Um, but. I still manage, you know, and part of that is due to my job that I have, I have the ability to listen to a whole bunch of podcasts and a lot of people may say, oh, that's not Bible study, but I guarantee you it absolutely is if you're listening to the right teachers. Well, and what is study? Study is the careful thought and consideration of a topic and the examination of a topic. Right. And so you're doing all of this very consciously and so when you begin studying Bible, I mean, I pulled out just a few things from the Egyptian mythology, and there are more. I, I didn't even think we would have time to get this much in, honestly, because we could, I could go further. I, the, the image of man. Uh-huh. Uh, most Egyptian mythology says that, yes, we are created in the image of a god, but the ultimate image of the god is reserved for Pharaoh uh-huh. and the aristocracy. Right. In Genesis, we're, we're all created in the image of God. 
Yeah, and I mean, and 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 I mean, and in the ancient, some of the ancient Sumerian text, uh, humanity is made from the blood of a demon. I mean, yeah. what does that say about humanity, based on that religion's? Uh, and we have a child worldview. <laughs> yeah. That's a terrible uh, thing to say about people. Well, and then if you look at the Mesopotamian uh, origins of of the other creation stories, you find that humanity wasn't created because God wanted to have relationship or a God wanted to have relationship. Humanity was created strictly for the purpose of doing the work that none of the other gods wanted to do. Right. And that's a full reversal when we're looking at Genesis because God creates the garden for man so that he doesn't have to work. It's not until humanity says, hey, I want to do things on my own, does God say, well, now I guess you have to work. Right. Before that, we got it pretty good. So, so but, yeah. <laughs> There's a whole lot of stuff there. Um, did you have anything else that you really wanted to, to add on there? I, I'm just, you know, the, the main thing I, I want people to take away from this is, um, this is not just simply Moses putting together a good story. It's not even Moses just borrowing from other stories. This is Moses recasting everything mm -hmm. and to demonstrate that God is greater. And throughout the Bible, when you begin to look, you're going to find references to other religions, other religious um, phrasing, like God being the writer of the clouds and things like that. It's not, this should not scare us as believers. Right. This should actually be a comfort because it says that God was active in history. And that he knows what was going on in the world. Very aware of what was going on in the world. And so that should, that should comfort us. That should empower us. And we should realize that our God is really, he is bigger, whether, you know, we're talking about a sea of chaos that um, he, he doesn't just reign over the sea of chaos. Uh, uh, Sorry, there's a lot of noise going on out there. I'm glad you can hear it. I can't. Because, well, I'm talking, I, I do have to throw this out there because this, this one's just really good. In most of the other creation myths, that sea of chaos is only overcome through bloody, gory battle. Mm -hmm. And this is one of the coolest ways that Moses just completely annihilates that. He's got God hovering over the water. And that Hebrew word there is a word picture of a hen on its nest. Yeah. Now think of that contrast. You know, not not gory conquest, not violent battle. Right. This nurturing attitude towards nature, because God doesn't have to fight chaos. He just decrees, and it's going to be what it is. And so, I, it, to me, it just, it makes God bigger. Yeah, that's cool. So, um, I like it. Real quick, uh, this is the book. If anybody wants to know any more, this is written very well. Uh, it's very accessible. It's called In the Beginning, uh, We Misunderstood, Johnny V. Miller and John Soden. And I love this because it breaks it down according to Egypt, uh, the Egyptian mythology, Mesopotamian, Canaanite, and then it has these wonderful like tables that allow you to compare point by point. And huh. uh, I think it was like, I forget how much it was on Amazon. But readily available. Again, and we'll and also uh, looks like a short book, so not even yeah, like terribly. It's, 
it's not, I mean, okay, footnotes. Minus the footnotes. And always look for footnotes when you're buying a book. 190 pages. Yeah, yeah. So super accessible. It's not You're not going to be on it for months on end necessarily. If you want to go a little bit more technical, then by me, all means, find Casuto. Yeah. Um, have fun with that. Um, that one might be a little bit more... Uh, a little bit more daunting, but sure. Yeah. So that that's uh, one source there. And I think there's even an academic paper that's available online. I'll have to look for. Yeah. And if you can find that where it's available, if it's available publicly, we'll uh, put that out on the, uh, yeah. in the show notes. So anything else? That's it. Okay. Awesome. Well, um, real quick, we had, a, we actually had a question uh, from Brian and I don't want to give last names away on the air, um, but um, I felt like this would be a good place to tackle part of it. And when we first uh, addressed this idea of Genesis as polemic and that we, um, you know, insisting on the six-day creation really detracted from our ability to to present the gospel because we're already, you know, asking people to accept that God became flesh, to accept that, you know, even, you know, crazier-sounding angels had children with human women, um, that miracles existed, um, things like that. And so, um, there's actually, uh, kind of, there's kind of three questions here, (laughs) even though it's broken into two. And so I'm just going to read, I'm going to read what we got. Uh, so the first question is, uh, when the Western and Eastern churches split, uh, uh, this is, this is Brian, by the way, uh, quote, uh, when the Western and Eastern churches split, I know enough to know the East took quote mysticism end quote, and the, uh, West took quote reason. How would you positively define Christian mysticism and what are some resources to better understand it? Now, to that question, I don't know. I haven't had a chance to look into that. So uh, we might try to pick that up for the Q&A episode, but I just want to read all of this, all the questions. Then uh, second question is, we as Western Christians tend to easily accept the incongruity of Christ being 100% man and 100% God because uh, without both, the resurrection doesn't work. However, we don't apply the same hermeneutic elsewhere. If you agree, what are some places you think you, uh, it could apply? Uh, one I think it applies to is foreknowledge versus open knowledge in the sort of middle knowledge. Again, feel free to tell me if I'm in need of some new reading material. And um, I, I, like, uh, I like the way that, that ended there, because that, uh, that's kind of how I feel a, a lot of it. a good thinker. Now, as far as open knowledge, closed knowledge, middle knowledge... Um, if I had the answer to that, I would have already written a, but, uh, a much better book than I did write. And, I, <laughs> and then you would be publicly stoned. And I, yeah, I'd, I'd probably be rejected by most of the church. Um, but I don't, I don't know about that. What I want to focus on uh, when talking about you know, accept, accepting the incongruity of Christ being 100% man and 100% God, um, for one, I don't see that necessarily as incongruity. Uh, because we are 100% physical beings, but we're also 100% spiritual beings. Uh, we're kind of built in that same kind of image. It's God happened to be, you know, Jesus happened to be inhabited by the Spirit of God, um, but was also Jesus 100% flesh. So to me, that part of it isn't as crazy. Where it kind of breaks down for me, or not breaks down, but gets a little more difficult, is when you think of, Jesus as the sustaining uh, logos that 
that sustains creation and how he entered into creation, even though he sustains it. That's where you get into some really crazy mystery stuff. So if I understand uh, where you're coming from on this, Brian, it's like, where do we say, okay, we can accept this mystery or accept this is a miracle, but this has an ex, but this over here has an explanation. Um, and to me, it kind of, and this is just kind of some uh, some thoughts I've had on. I haven't done a lot of research, but just to me, it seems like if there is a repeatable kind of scientific method to get somewhere, then we can kind of chalk that up to the order of the universe and providential uh, means. Um, when we get into the miraculous or the things that are mysterious beyond the point of understanding, we get to those things that you know we have no way of. Sorry, the daughters uh, are doing something again. But we have no way of repeating or no way to build a mathematical model for. That's when you kind of get in that realm of miracle. You know, um, and a a good example for this to kind of compare and contrast is uh, German monks, when they would brew beer, they uh, they didn't cultivate yeast. Everything was just wild yeast. And so what they would do is they would boil the... uh, boil the grains and then uh, filter it out and they would set their wort, uh, what you call the second the stage of beer where it's not fully formed. It needs to set out and, and ferment. And so they would set the wort out in these open air vats and then wild yeast would come in and colonize the wort. And in that process, they didn't fully understand what was going on. So they just kind of thought like the Holy Spirit moved over the uh, face of their beer. and so they they thought it was a miracle. Now we can, you know, we can look at this and go, okay, now we have a repeatable recipe for it versus something like turning water instantaneously into fine wine. Mm-hmm. And not just any wine, but fine wine. We're and, in Boone's Farm. Right. Or, or MD 2020. <laughs> but, you know, that's kind of where whenever we get beyond being able to make some kind of mathematical model, that's where I think we can kind of go, okay, we've gone as far as reason can take us. And so we have to trust that either um, there's a providential uh, structure built into the universe that we just haven't understood yet, or that there is a miracle occurring. And whichever one of those we land on, you know, should we discover that there is some method we just didn't understand for transforming water into wine. That doesn't make God less God in my mind. So I don't know if, I hope that answers your question. Um, but those are, that's kind of where that, uh, in my mind, kind of fits together. Well, I, I would even push it a little further and say the fact that there is a providential model it is in play, that's a miracle in and of itself. So acknowledging that God's present in all systems. I think we need to be be doing that, whether it it seems supernatural or we it seems very natural and mundane to uh-huh. us. And I don't think we need to be um, you know we shouldn't discount the systems that an orderly God put in play to fulfill His will. Right, and that's pretty awesome. And uh, you, one other little thing you talked about, you know, the Logos entering back into the Word, entering back into His creation. Mm. Right there, we have another polemic event that that happens because in all other mythologies the earth is it is the gods the earth is 
the manifestation. The sun is a god. The grass is a god. The wind is a god. And yeah. so God had to re-enter to join us here in, in, as a human and in that human form. So you, you can see how these ideas start to build and stack and inform each story from a little different angle. Yeah. And the more light you can shine on them from the different angles, the better we're going we're gonna to get at understanding the underlying meaning and appreciating. And it's just going to, I think it's going to add to our understanding. So, yeah, that sounds good. Anything else? Yeah, I'm good. Okay. Well, that seems like a, a good place to I land. Think your wife has food for us. Um, well, yeah, uh, probably. I hope that the kids didn't distract you guys too much, but, um, yeah, so we are going to be back next week. What are we, co- we're doing Q and a next time. Question and answers. Question and answers. For our 10th episode. 10th episode. That's cool. That's a milestone. Double yeah. digits. So um, question and answer next time. If you like what you heard, again, you know, hit that subscribe button. Please share with a friend. Um, again, that helps us probably more than anything else you can do. If you really like what you heard, uh, hit up iTunes. Write us a review. That uh, helps us out and gets us uh, farther up in the list, especially those five-star reviews. Um, and then we get to, uh, if you really, really like us, uh, patreon.com slash Raven Creek SC is coming out soon. In the meantime, though, stay in touch at ravencreeksc.com, Raven Creek SC on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Uh, we'll be glad to hear from you, questions, comments, and uh, I can't imagine anyone would have complaints. But we'll take yeah. all those too if you have them. So, anyway, uh, hit us up. We'll be glad to hear from you. Until next time, thanks for listening. Bye. Okay. Faith and Other Oddities podcast, a Raven Creek Social Club production. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. If you like what you've heard, please write us a review on iTunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash ravencreeksc. As always, thank you for listening and don't forget to join us next week.